So empowering people of saying, and this can be kids or adults, can you name two vegetables or fruits that you enjoy? Tell me about your favorite meals, favorite food memories that you have at home. Where do you tend to get your food? And I'm right there using my culinary medicine brain of saying, okay, this is the palate they're working with. I also know if they have a certain disease state like diabetes. So I'm thinking, what are foods that could help this person to move in a direction where their sugars might not spike as much, but continue to stay in that place where they don't feel like they're being deprived because that's never the goal. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. This podcast is brought to you by Orlo Nutrition, the world's most sustainable and bioavailable algae-based supplements in the world. They produce omega-3s and their best-absorbed polar lipid form from pure, sustainable algae that's grown at their state-of-the-art facility in Iceland. These omega-3s, they provide a direct source of EPA and DHA, just like you would typically get from fish oil. Guess why? Because the algae produce the EPA and DHA that the fish receive. What's unique about this source is that it's actually three times better absorbed than fish oil because of its polar lipid structure. This means it's not only better for you, but better for the planet and without that fishy burp. Now, if you're ready to explore and get to know these products, I want to invite you to visit orlonutrition.com. You can receive an extra 10% off your order just by using the coupon code NWC10 at checkout. That is a site-wide discount, which can save you up to 37% off all in. Again, that's NWC10 for an extra 10% off at orlonutrition.com. Now, I wanted to read that before I invite our guest up today, because I will communicate at the start of this that I am a bit of an omega-3 expert. So if we start to talk about omega nutrition, I'll happily impart any knowledge with all of those listeners today. Now, today we are going to broaden our discussion and conversation on the topic of food as medicine, as I am joined by a practicing physician turned culinary medicine powerhouse, Dr. Sabrina Falquier. Dr. Falquier is a board-certified internal medicine practitioner and a bilingual citizen of the world. Her medical career has spanned 15 years as a primary care physician, and in 2020, she founded Sensacion Salud, which focuses on empowering people through nutritional knowledge and culinary literacy. Dr. Falquier is the proud host of the Doctors Plus Premium podcast on Apple Podcasts. She sits on the board of two nonprofits and is a clinical professor at two universities. You might have seen and heard from her before as she appears in a variety of media, including podcasts like this, especially if you happen to be in the San Diego area. Dr. Sabrina Falquier, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Corinne. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> well, it's just such a pleasure. I loved the fact that I got to pre-introduce you in a way through this podcast episode where I had Esther Garfin from the Alternative Food Network on. So our audience has heard a little bit about you, but I'd love for you to just start by telling us a bit about your story what brought you from perhaps a more traditional path of being a family medicine practitioner into something more? Yes, it's been quite a journey. 
So I'll start from the beginning, but I promise I won't make this too long. But essentially, I was actually born and raised in Mexico City to Swiss and American parents. So I say that because there were different languages, different culture, and different food traditions, different flavors that were really a part of my life since I was born. And essentially, I moved to the U.S. when I was 11, and I love the sciences. So yes, food and travel and these pieces were part of my life, but I really felt drawn towards understanding how the body worked. So essentially I went to college really with the goal of going to medical school. I also have family members in my family who are doctors, allopathic MDs. And so that was the road that I knew and that was a road that felt comfortable. So essentially fast forward, I went to medical school in traditional, I did internal medicine residency and started working full-time as a primary care provider in an internal medicine multi-specialty group. Wow. So I think you said you'd been to a medical conference and had a bit of an aha moment when we were just getting to know each other a little bit before. Could you tell that story? Yes, yes. So I'd been in practice by now. Fast forward again, I've been married for a while. I have two children and life is quite full and fantastic. And I had the opportunity to go to a conference in Napa, and it's called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. It's a combination, a collaboration between the Culinary Institute of America and the Harvard School of Public Health. And the keynote speaker started talking. I actually started crying, which, as one can imagine, is not usual in a medical conference. Well, I can picture myself as a fly on the wall. I've been to a couple of restaurants where people were schooled from Culinary Institute of America right there in the Napa area. I can imagine how beautiful that must have been and also just appreciate the difference from a typical medical conference that you might have been at before. So as we delve into this whole concept of culinary medicine, of food as medicine, I think before we dig into the science of it, we might want to share a brief disclaimer Given that we're talking about health and nutrition, this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, cure any ailments. If you have a specific health concern, you should meet with a practitioner, perhaps even Dr. Sabrina Falquier herself. Now, as we dig into this subject, I would like for you to share with our audience what exactly culinary medicine is, how it might even be different or complementary to this concept of food as medicine and how it ultimately empowers people to reach better health. I love that you started with the magic word. To me, is empowering. It's really about helping people have the tools to really improve their health using food as the way to do that. So the definition, there's a few different rotating definitions, all with truly these two pieces. So one is the combination of evidence-based nutritional information meeting the culinary arts. Another way of explaining that is essentially really helping people understand the why. So why put the effort of eating food that is in as close as possible to the way nature intended for it to be, so in their whole form? And then once we understand the why, so what happens if I eat that versus something that's processed or ultra-processed? And then how? So now that I understand that taking the time and the effort to cook, to grocery shop, to go to the farmer's market, wherever we get our food, to know how to take those ingredients, Number one might be what this ingredient is, but then how to take those ingredients and make meals that really are delicious. I always have to emphasize that, that they're delicious and also help our body to be as healthy as it can be. I think the standard American might only eat a few vegetables a month. If we're talking about the variety of vegetables, they might even only eat the same basic meals every week, be it, okay, I have grilled chicken on this day, or I might have steak on that day. Or I've gone mostly plant-based, but it's looking like a lot of packaged foods and dinners. 
So how do you coach people or get them on a path to increasing the variety of foods that they consume and really diving into foods that are also, let's say, culturally relevant for them? I'm thinking specifically of a friend of mine, Diane V. Capaldi, who talks about her struggle with multiple sclerosis and managing that and how she was so in love with pasta, but to then learn that she can never have gluten, like she can never have gluten and nothing that would spike her gluten in any way. Or she gets into this state, which is called, I think it's a girdle or something where it feels like she's being strangled essentially through her lungs. So having to be super sensitive and then dive into how do I connect with my family and appreciate food within this culture while also dealing with dietary restrictions that are imposed by my health concern. So you just brought up a few different things I want to touch base. But first, going back to your last question of how food as medicine is used, uh, they're part of your first question is, there's a movement and actually in a conference that was recently took place, a nutrition conference that hadn't happened for almost 30 years that we'd had that discussion as a country. The conversation about food as medicine came up a lot. And one of the topics was prescription, essentially food prescriptions. And that is really where if somebody has kidney disease or like in the case of your friend with multiple sclerosis, they might be working with a company or a group that prepares meals that are specific for that disease state. So we see this again for people with advanced HIV or AIDS, or we see it with people with renal disease where their kidneys aren't working anymore. So that is something where it's essentially pre-made food that is delivered to patients for certain disease states. Culinary medicine is really, like I mentioned, the empowering piece. So a lot of it is finding out where the person's coming from. So in the case of your friend, there's very specific restriction on not being able to have pasta. So there really is anything that has gluten is off the plate, off the table. So then asking, okay, what is this person, what does she like to eat? What are the flavor profiles that she enjoys? If she enjoys pasta, what's the sauce on it? What is the flavor? Does she like really spicy like arrabbiata or does she enjoy more creamy sauces? So finding out what her palate is and then working with that to move into spaces where she can still get that comfort, that deliciousness that she had from a pasta in a way that no longer worsens her multiple sclerosis or causes these symptoms. So that's the specific. And a more greater, which you mentioned the standard American diet, where the beautiful vegetables that we see of all different colors and fruits of different colors, a lot of people do not eat those on a regular basis. The typical is kind of this plate with brown food on it. So we have meats or chicken that you mentioned. We have again, pasta or breads or think there's really not much of that colorful. And that whole concept of eating the rainbow, and we can take that to the next level of eating from different parts of the plant, each of those colors, each of those parts of the plant, like if I'm eating root vegetables like beets or carrots or potatoes a different color, those are all going to give my body different nutrients. So that's a different way of looking at it as well. So empowering people of saying, and this can be kids or adults, can you name two vegetables or fruits that you enjoy? Tell me about your favorite meals, favorite food memories that you have at home. Where do you tend to get your food? And I'm right there using my culinary medicine brain of saying, okay, this is the palate they're working with. I also know if they have a certain disease state like diabetes. So I'm thinking, what are foods that could help this person to move in a direction where their sugars might not spike as much, but continue to stay in that place where they don't feel like they're being deprived because that's never the goal. Well, you brought something up that I think is critical to any healthy diet and part of the reason that fat diets don't work, generally speaking, that we have the situation where people think that in order to be healthy, they have to limit themselves. They have to remove, reduce, make something that's 
frankly, less appealing and that they just have to suffer through it. And so Mm -hmm. finding those, let's say, replacement foods or things that can be just as enjoyable or even more so because they'll feel better, that they ultimately get to a space where they feel like they're able to retain that cultural relevancy. They've got the same kind of flavors that they're used to. They're enjoying some of the same textures. And while it might not be the same food, it's a food that's just much better for them. I also think it's important to note that this isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's part of the reason that when you start to look at these culinary approaches where you're saying, okay, this is the diet that will work best for you. But there's this kind of personal end to that that can make it both more enjoyable and more sustainable to where you're not just, okay, limit, 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 not eat, not eat, not eat, deprive, deprive, deprive. Now I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and I'm just going to go to the store and get a tub of Ben and Jerry's and a loaf of bread and call it a day, right? Yes. And absolutely, because there's a lot of studies that look at most people can really, really people that are really excited about whatever got them into diet XYZ, that people can stay on it maybe about three months max. And then there starts being this, I feel exactly like you said, this deprivation, this vilification of either on the diet or off the diet, this guilt, this disconnection from being social with the people around us because we can only eat certain things. And that realization that even your friend who can't have gluten, there's so many grains that she can have. So that's the part. We're not saying you're taking out that entire part of our plate or an entire food group. We're saying, okay, these are foods that can take that space of that really important food group. Well, and I think it's important to note something as simple as a food allergy. I am sensitive to broccoli. Does that mean I never dine out? No, but it does mean that every time I get the vegetable dish that comes along with whatever, I always have to remember to ask, does it contain broccoli? Is the soup stock from broccoli? Some simple things like that, because depending on how much broccoli there is to it, my reaction can be as severe as I have stabbing pains in my gut and I need to go essentially relieve myself by whatever means necessary to get this out as quickly as possible so that I can recover in quiet and solitude in my home. So not fun because I've had accidental broccoli before. (laughs) Something, some restaurants will actually shave the stalks of it and use it as a garnish on salads. And so when I have forgotten to ask, I've sometimes been punished for that. But it doesn't mean I can't go out and enjoy food and be with my friends and family. I've also gone through stretches where I completely removed all grains from my diet to try and assess if there were other health issues, I might be related to consumption of grains. And what I found was that it was both easier than I thought it would be and also freeing because I'd just taken one part of the plate and maybe this would be hard for people in the beginning, but I took one part of the plate and said, look, I can eat everything else. I can eat all the vegetables. I can eat all the spices. Well, except for broccoli. I can eat any of the lean proteins that I want I just can't have this. And so I think even framing it or positioning it a little differently helped me to both handle that. And then when I went out to dine, it was just no big deal. It started to feel like it was just, oh, I just, I'm doing grain free for a while. And that's all I would say to people. I don't have to go into the explanation of I'm doing an elimination diet to see if there's another food allergy or whatever. It it didn't matter. I'm just grain free. And plus that's becoming more popular today. Like more people are trying to move into this whole foods, plant-based diet where they have more sustenance coming from the rainbow, like this plate behind me, getting more green leafy vegetables, trying different vegetables and fruits that they might not otherwise have had, and being more culinarily creative through even some things like meal plants, like subscribing to HelloFresh 
fresh or I think there's a blue apron and something with a carrot. There's all these different brands that you can connect with. Are there any particular services that you like or that help you get people to get into the kitchen and connect with food in a different way? I feel like I have to preface this with, this is not sponsored by. (laughs) No, not sponsored by, but just your preference. Who do you like? Yeah. So I think this goes back to being the, the personalizing it, right? So I'm asking patients, where do they patients or clients, where are they usually getting their food? So if somebody loves already going to the farmer's market, then getting perhaps a CSA box where you have a box of vegetables delivered to you. Some people don't like the idea of a box delivered with vegetables because they don't know what half the things are. Also, does someone have the financial means to get something like Blue Apron or HelloFresh? All of those companies are pretty much the same idea. There are certain recipes that people might be gravitates more towards. And that's what I encourage. If people feel financially that this is where they're at and it helps to not have to think about going to the grocery store and getting a teaspoon of soy sauce or having all these ingredients that then you might not use again, this is a really great way to explore recipes where somebody else has already done a bulk of the work by getting the appropriate ingredients and at the right amount into your home. They've kitted it for you, essentially. They've done the shopping for you, most of it. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so there's a couple of methods that I've used with my kids to help get them involved. And I wanted to see if this could be an idea fodder for you to share something from your experience too. When I do take them shopping with me, I tend to give them both one thing to do. And that is when we go through the produce aisle, I want you to choose something that you've never tried before or that you want to cook with. And then we will buy stuff to make a recipe around that. And so we start there and then it makes the rest of the shopping tour an adventure. Now, this has worked really well for my older child, a little less well for my younger child, even from the same age point. Like if I was to go back in time to when my older child was five, he was just more into it. But it caused him, the first time I did it, to grab a Buddha's hand. Now, I had never cooked with a Buddha's hand. And so I looked at this thing that looks a bit like a squid or octopus swimming through water. I knew automatically it was citrus because it has the rind of like a lemon, but it's different. And I didn't quite know how to use it. So I end up on my phone in the store going, what recipes can I make with Buddha's hand, right? And what we ended up making was kind of a Szechuan style stir fry and incorporating some of the zest from it and juice that I also incorporated into a beverage I made for them. So we just had fun with it and we explored it. And I think that by taking this method, I don't run into some of the same difficulties that I see my friends have with getting their kids to try new foods because they're involved in the kitchen. My five-year-old, still a little bit pickier on the eating side, also happens to be on the spectrum. The two are probably related, but he's a lot more adventurous than many other kids I know that are his age. So it's a creative tool I use, and I wonder if you have more. Those are great. And you're using right there that empowerment piece, right? You're giving them a choice. You're showing them that there's so much. I mean, it all points in our life, but especially as children, so many decisions are made for us. Eat this, eat this now. You're going to go to school now. You're going to get picked up. You're going to go to XYZ activity. And here's a situation where you're bringing in choice. You're bringing in empowerment. And you're also creating the space where you're listening and saying, wow, we could do this together. So I applaud you for that. One that I use with my kids, they're both teenagers now, but was very beginning when they could do basic math is there's often conversations about why can't we get the cereal? Why can't we do the sugary cereal? Like those pieces of it. So teaching them a really simple tool to figure out which cereals fit 
and I'm doing air quotes, fit the criteria and essentially <laughs> looking at the back of the cereal box because the front of a cereal box is going to be an advertisement full of essential vitamins or uses a whole grain or it's an advertisement. But on the back, on the nutritional label, they have to give you the facts. So essentially what you're looking is a cereal where the grams of protein plus the grams of fiber are more than the grams of sugar. Hmm. I'll repeat that again. So the grams of protein plus the grams of fiber to be more than your grams of sugar. There are not many cereals that fit that criteria. And when my kids would go, I knew they'd be in that cereal aisle, sometimes up to 30 minutes. I mean, they wanted to find which cereals they could get. And ultimately, it was just a few. And then I could feel comfortable like, okay, this is a cereal that you could have. And not that cereal is the best breakfast on a day to day, but it, I felt much more comfortable that they're getting some nutrients in their body. And it was very interesting because, for example, there's a, like Cheerios, regular Cheerios actually fit that criteria. But if you have high protein Cheerios, the protein they must put in it must have a flavor that's really bland or another flavor. So they add more sugar to make up for whatever flavor the protein must come in. So that one does not fit the criteria, even though you would think so front of the box. So your older child might be ready for that adventure in the, in the cereal aisle. <laughs> I've managed to keep cereals out of our morning routine, and I think I'm going to keep it that way. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> we make them protein-oriented breakfasts in the morning, and we also give them things like crunchy vegetables, and they like it. So I'll give you a for instance, my five-year-old this morning, he wanted a mini bell pepper for each hand. So we had a yellow one and a red one. He was just munching on them. I'm like, great. This is a great start. And then once he's had those, he's less picky about the thing I put on his plate next. So these are, again, just tools for parents out there. Sometimes they have free range, so to speak, of our crisper drawer. They can always grab anything from there. That's the rule I have in my household. But we generally speaking don't grab for prepared foods first off. They have to ask. And perhaps I'm a little militant on that, but I want to give them the foundation first. <laughs> no, that's huge. And the other part, just to go along with your five-year-old, that sense of making the kitchen part of the family activities. So age appropriate. So maybe a child can rip lettuce. So you're not putting any tool in their hand. Manual dexterity might not be there yet. Attention spans can be in different places, but that's thinking about what they can do. They also using scissors to trim string beans, for example. So using different ways to get people involved. And if they don't want to touch the food, have them do their homework on the kitchen counter while some the person who's cooking is cooking. So they get the smells. You might speak out loud of saying, oh yeah, today I'm using paprika for this dish. And the curiosity could take, sometimes it takes a while, but usually it actually comes pretty quickly of saying, huh, can I taste that? Or is that one spicy? It's red. So I'm assuming it's spicy. The conversations that come about instead of the sense of one person is isolated in the kitchen preparing the food joyfully or not. And the rest of the household is somewhere else, either on devices or kind of relaxing while someone feels like they're doing this chore, which we want to get back to that place of pleasure and really being the kitchen being a center of community. I love that. Now you have me thinking about a couple of things. One is we touched on this whole idea of cultural relevancy. Now I like exploring different methods of making food and different cultures of food around the world because I really, I just love food. When I was in high school, one of my good friends was from Korea. Her family was from Korea. And I was invited into their home when they were making mealtime prep. They used scissors to cut almost everything. It was just like the scissors is the preferred cutting implement. And from that point forward, I never understood why people would 
chop scallions with a knife as a for instance so just cut it right over the soup or whatever i'm making is quite easy and i also really started to gravitate towards wooden implements and even using chopsticks to stir things like a stir fry it just works so well and then if you wanted to test how well cooked something that it wasn't getting too mushy you just like literally just squeeze it with the chopsticks and it would tell you from that biofeedback in a way and so Im- using implements from other styles of cooking can also be an interesting way to explore the kitchen and explore different ways of cooking so i wanted to get to health outcomes but if you have something else to add please do I just want to add, I thought where you were going with that, because behind me on this side, you can see I have a globe. I know there's there's a family, and I love this, where they would spin the globe and essentially point to a place, and they would have to see, kind of, what country is this? And they would create a meal around that. So they would be this learning what what the flavors are, what spices, what herbs might be used and learning more about a place that might be different from something they were familiar with, which is another great way of talking about geography and talking about we don't all eat the same, we don't all speak the same language, and often it's food that can bring us more united. So that's just another tidbit, but I love what you're seeing, that sensory of the doneness with the chopsticks and... Thank you for sharing that story. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting because we all live in a bit of a multicultural world these days. If you think of how connected we are on a global scale, and if we'll just lean into that a little bit, we can inspire curiosity, not only in ourselves, but of our kids. I have the added benefit with my older son. He's in martial arts courses and it's a Korean school. So he's already automatically interested. He's counting for me in Korean and asking me if I know how to count to 20 in Korean. And I'm like, no, you want to do that again? <laughs> so <laughs> then connects to, oh, did you know that in Korea, they would mostly use, they like to use scissors for cutting common vegetables in your kitchen and things like that. Perhaps not the carrots and the more coarse vegetables, but for simple things, like they're used a lot in the kitchen. And so my older son he loves using the kitchen shears. My younger son, a little too young for that yet. I'm afraid he might slice the finger a little bit too deeply, <laughs> need an emergency room visit overall. It's really neat to see them get inspired and become a part of it. Wow. So I want to hear from you because you've been in practice for more than 15 years now. You found this company Sensation Salute. Talk about that and perhaps some of the outcomes that you see that are health-oriented and your clients and your patients when you really get involved with culinary medicine. Yes. So one of the guests that we actually had in the Doctors Plus Premium, they wrote a cookbook on anti-inflammatory diet for families. And what I love about all the co-authors is that each of them brought in different cultural foods because it was about six co-authors. And it's this beautiful melange where they give you the freedom of exploring and not feel like you have to stick with if I'm making a Korean dish like you've been talking about or a Mexican dish or otherwise that you have to stick within the lines. Like maybe use a vegetable that's normally used in Korea in a Mexican dish and just loosening up and letting yourself really explore that. That was a great conversation. She's a pediatric endocrinologist and co-author this book. So to ask about the outcomes, so there's a few pieces that I love about culinary medicine. And one is really all these conversations we've been having about figuring out what is the person's why, what, the inspiration for taking the time to turn to food, to turn to more time in the kitchen than is the common place in the U.S. One of the groups where I've done this is a nonprofit really near the Mexican border in National City and nonprofits, Olivewood Gardens and Learning Center. And there's a group of women called the Kitchenistas who become a kitchenista after they've gone through this eight-week program called Cooking for Salud. And we studied, we had a grant that was through a local university and looked at 
the objective numbers. So essentially, there's often, this is nationwide, or I should say even worldwide in culinary medicine, is we're looking at, is there change in behavior? So does somebody feel more comfortable going to the store and picking a produce and knowing what to do with it? And then the other part is, if they're doing these things, are they having improvement in, say, their blood pressure, diabetes numbers, cholesterol? And so we're able to study the outcomes and saw that there was a statistically significant reduction in their in their lipid levels and their hemoglobin A1C. So essentially their cholesterol got better and their diabetes got better. So we'd already had a lot of information on behavior change, but we finally had black and white objective information that really showed improvement statistically. So that was really exciting. Wow. And do you think this is partially due to increased consumption of things like dietary fiber uh, prebiotics, probiotics, like what are the things that are making this really work? Is it really eating that rainbow or is it just moving away from processed foods? If you had one or two things to say about that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot more than two <laughs> things to say, but I will try to keep it to two. So I think it's both moving towards whole foods. So foods as close to nature And the way we often use the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate, which is essentially when we look at the government plate, the myplate.gov, it's essentially that, but only the science without kind of the big industries like dairy industry or the meat industry getting in there. So the bottom line is really trying to fill half your plate with fruits and vegetables, whatever combination thereof. There are some entities that feel it should be a little bit more vegetables and fruits. But again, fruits and vegetables, half your plate, one quarter whole grain and one quarter well thought out protein. And meaning it could be plant-based protein like beans, it could be chicken, it could be fish. And then hydrating mainly with water, black coffee or black tea if you drink those and then also getting regular exercise. So that's what it comes down to. So if you think of it, someone's used to eating a giant steak that fills up the whole plate, and now I am (laughs) filling up half that plate with those beautiful vegetables behind you. Now I've crowded out that piece of steak. So it's kind of both of what you said. What are we moving towards and what are we leaving behind? I think it's so important to think about this because when people are consuming vegetables and fruits, especially in their raw state, they take a little longer to chew. This also means that your brain has time to catch up with your stomach and say, I'm full now, you know, as opposed to just overeating this super calorie dense, perhaps fat laden piece of steak. You're giving your body signals with the fruits and vegetables come all sorts of fibers, which feed the good bacteria in your gut. So all of this works together to enable you to reach your best health. Now, a lot of people have gone grain free, and this is the overall problem I have with the plate from the government saying a quarter of it is whole grains. So if there was a replacement for the whole grains, what would you put there? I would not take away the whole grains. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I feel like there's so much variety. So again, from fully 100% gluten-free to ones that are more like your whole wheat products, but there's so many different options now. There's a lot of ancient grains that we can go back to. I say back to because they used to be in societies all over the place. And for a while, they started coming back, but you can only get them at specialty food stores. Mm -hmm. And the price point was quite high, but now they're starting to be much more available. And like you mentioned that broccoli doesn't work for you, but other, sounds like other cruciferous vegetables do, like cauliflower or otherwise. I ate a lot of Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Yeah, they're so good. Now that roasted Brussels sprouts have taken the place of ultra boiled Brussels sprouts. But yeah, so that sense of if grain A doesn't work for me, let me explore. So for example, teff, which is used to make injera, 
which is used in Ethiopian food, almost their bread that's used. But you can make taff like a porridge for the morning. So that's an option there. So there's such, I mean, there are over three dozen grains that I can think right off the top of my head. And again, there's some that people tolerate more than others. Well, and I will point out, as per an earlier episode of this podcast, we brought on Carol Levine and Ken Lee, who are founders of Lotus Foods and recently wrote a book and cookbook called Rice is Life. That particular type of grain doesn't tend to be allergenic to people. And so even if they are gluten sensitive, or in my case, I recently did an Everly Well food sensitivity test and learned that I have no issue with gluten. It's not the gluten but there are other proteins and other grains and it included buckwheat and amaranth and like all these others. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so thankfully, rice is still a really good option for me. I can do pure wheat and I can do oat, but I'm pretty much left with that I know are okay. Rices, I really like black rice, forbidden rice, wild rice, and then also oat and I just get a non-GMO oat. I make my own oat powder to cook with sometimes, like a flour. It's very easy. You just get the rolled oats that are non-GMO, put them in the Vitamix for a minute or so, and I've got flour. It's like really simple. And then also I use, I think I did mention that. Okay, I have the rice, I have the oat, and I do use some wheat. But Yeah. So you just mentioned a perfect example where you have some sensitivities, but you were able to carve out which are foods that can be a part of that quadrant. And I also love that you brought up that rice comes in many different colors. Red rice is one of my favorites if I still wanted to sop up the sauce or forbidden rice. Those are two of my absolute favorites. <laughs> I know. I just love it so much. It's got this nice kind of nutty finish to it. I, I'll add it to soup stocks. I you know do all sorts of things with that. If there's a little bit extra made, I'm like, oh, good. What else do I get to make with this? And so I think also as we get into the kitchen, as we get inspired, we can find new ways to connect with food and recipes that we can make from the leftovers of the previous recipe. I recently made a stew with my older son and I had black eyed peas that have been sitting in my pantry for a long time. And I just decided I was going to get them ready and figure out what I was going to make with them later. I liked the way they looked. And so when my son saw these peas with little black eyes on them, he's like, well, what are we going to do with this? And I'm like, well, look, we have this pre-packaged Indian like stew package that was nicely made, didn't have a lot of bad ingredients in it, but ultimately was probably too flavorful for my younger child. So I'm like, well, what if we combine this with the black eyed peas and some vegetable stock so it gives it more flavor and then choose some vegetables. And I always go to the crisper drawer and invariably I've got some celery that is getting rubbery and some carrots that are getting flappery, flappy. And cut those up, throw those in. They still make fantastic, nutritious foods in this kind of soup form. And then nobody cares that it's not that crisp crunch that it was three or four days before. So I encourage people, especially in this season, to think about stews and soups because they can be really fun, really easy. They can feed you dinners for a couple of days and they can also be repurposed. If you make a really thick soup, sometimes I will end up putting it as a salad topper and have it cold. So those are different things that you can do in the kitchen. Oh, I love your creativity that you have, meaning just that sense of how can we translate this or transition a dish to cater to more family members or repurposing. Soups are also a great way if you do have kids that aren't into as many vegetables, often mirepoix, which is a combination of carrots, celery, and onions, make a really great base for so many different dishes. And once they're cooked, the texturally, one is not 
aware that you're having all these vegetables. And I'm not saying you're trying to sneak this into your kid's palate, but it is a great way. No, I'm always sneaking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's, but yeah, so you can be at whatever stage it is, but it's a really great way. And for adults too, to add yet more variety and flavor building to your dishes. Fantastic. Now, I wonder as we prepare to transition and get ready for, let's say, the last 10 minutes of the show, if you have any quick tips and tricks to saving time in the kitchen and food prep to help people stay engaged in the kitchen, even if it's a weekday and they've got a busy schedule. Mm, so batch cooking is a big one. So usually on the weekends, if there's a day that we're home, kind of just doing life at home, I'll turn on my oven and I encourage you to do this too at about 400 degrees and to roast trays of vegetables. And essentially when you roast, you want to make sure it's a single layer, drizzle your oil of choice. So I usually do either olive oil or avocado oil, tiny bit of salt, and that's it. You just toss it with your hands right in the pan and essentially do a few trays of that because then you are being your own sous chef. So if I've roasted a few vegetables, if you do eat meat products, you can also do some roasted protein of your choice. I'll also cook one or two whole grains on the stovetop. And those are the ones I can think of at this present time. <laughs> but essentially then you are, you prepare. So that evening for dinner, we might have some of those roasted vegetables right out of the oven as part of our dish. The next morning, I could heat those up and put an egg on top. And that's our breakfast where we're now getting a lot of vegetables. That next evening, I could blend them with my favorite broth, homemade broth or store-bought if just can't imagine making our own broth. And now you have a soup. So out of one roasting event, you already have three meals that came out of that. So, And that I find is more enticing than making the same thing. Like I make a huge pot of soup. If I do that, I usually freeze the extras because by day four, if you're literally taking out the same soup and ladling again, we just we get bored of it. And some people can start disliking it. Like, oh God, we have to have that soup yet again. So this is a way to use the same ingredients. The time, the part that takes a lot of time, like the cooking a whole grain that can take longer than, for example, if we're doing that forbidden rice compared to white rice, it's gonna take two to three times as long to cook. So I'm doing it on a day where we're just kind of around the house. And then you come home on a weekday when things are crazier. And within 15, 20 minutes, you could have a delicious meal on the table. And it's less time to reheat that meal than it is to sit in line at a drive-thru to get food. Well, you have me thinking of one of my favorite breakfast dishes to cook, but it is also one of those things that is a little tedious because you have to first blacken the peppers and then peel the blackened edge of the peppers. You have to let them cool first enough to do that, right? And then so it, this could be a dish that takes two to three hours to make if you're doing it all in one soup. And it's called a piperade. It's a French dish, but essentially is egg-based because in France, they'll eat omelets for dinner. It's a little different than we are here. So a piperade, think of it like a frittata a bit, but a French take on that. So you would go ahead and let's say roast some vegetables before, do things like prepare the peppers by blackening them and then peeling them. So you've just got this nice, easy to put into a casserole, so to speak. Then you make the egg casserole in a wrought iron dish or pot, and then you're putting that into the oven to roast for 30 minutes or to cook for 30 minutes, right? It ends up being like a frittata, but French take, maybe a little bit more cream-based if you use dairy. Really delicious. I mean, I just encourage people to look up recipes for piperade if they eat eggs. It's P-I-P-E-R-A-D-E. Oh my gosh. Like divine, all of them. Every single one I've ever tried. And I've made a few. I'm drooling over here. That sounds absolutely delicious. 
And it's funny you mentioned the eggs because when my kids were little, we would do eggs a lot for dinners because two working parents, like it was just so fast. And then one day we had brunch and the or breakfast and there were eggs served. It's like, oh, people have eggs for breakfast. <laughs> so I realized as a household, it wasn't what we normally had for breakfast. And it was, it was kind of amusing. Well, I wonder as a doctor and as someone who treats people, are there common deficiencies that you see in individuals or things that you might turn to supplements for or encourage people to take a specific supplement for even with a healthy diet? There's a quote at that that Michael Pollan actually says is that eat as if you take supplements. And what I mean by that is most people who take supplements are people who are already conscious about what they're bringing into their body. So you don't usually have somebody who's going through three drive throughs a day and then comes home and takes supplements. So if one is eating, like we've been talking about during this episode of eating the rainbow, eating from different parts of the plant, eating that well-rounded plate as we discussed, if you're fully plant-based, there is B12 is something that you absolutely should take a supplement. And vitamin D is the other common one that comes up a lot. And then I know omega-3s are the third. If I were to recommend three vitamins, those would be the three that I would recommend to round out a really well-balanced diet. Well, and thankfully, I actually have all of those covered in Orlo Nutrition. So <laughs> if you guys are curious to learn more, you can visit orlonutrition.com and again, use that coupon code NWC10 for an extra 10% off at checkout. Now, something like vitamin B12, I don't think people understand the reason that it's hard to get enough of that as a vegan or vegetarian. So why is it that they aren't getting enough? If they're being so mindful of the things that they're eating and having a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables and working to get the right proteins and everything else. Yeah. So essentially, if we were having this conversation 50 to 75 years ago, we would, even if we were fully plant-based, be getting enough B12. But a lot of it comes back to the soil health of our lands now. So essentially, now we can get B12 from animal flesh or essentially from eating pretty much, yeah, animal flesh, beef, yeah, beef especially, it's really hard to get enough now through plant-based eating because of that, because our soil, it doesn't mean when I say this, I want to preemptive, it's still better for you to eat fruits and vegetables. And otherwise I'm not saying not to, but those are certain supplements that are necessary if you're not eating any animals. Yeah. And I know that this may be hard for people to kind of absorb and understand, but I read some research years ago that showed that spinach, as a, for example, had something like 17% of the iron that it had in it in our grandparents' age, just because the soil has been depleted of a lot of the micronutrients. Like we might add the standard nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium to our soils as augmentation to help the vegetation grow. But because we farm the same land over and over, these micronutrients, micronutrients become more the problem. Animals bioaccumulate them, so that's where we go to them. It's really interesting, and this is something that's coming up with Orlo, is that the spirulina we're growing, because we're growing it the way we're growing it, it produces vitamin B12 in the methylcobalamin form. And interestingly, spirulina grown in open ponds doesn't. And we're still trying to get to the bottom of why this occurs, but it means that the immunity boost, for instance, that we produce with our spirulina um, actually has vitamin B12 in the methylcobalamin form. We've added another smattering of B vitamins to balance it, and then also included vitamin D3, colocalciferol. So great immune boosting formula. And I mean, I take it every day. So there's a few things that I supplement with and I like to share with the audience. I mean, I'm of your mind too. like fill the gaps, find where there are gaps. I also happen to be of the APOE3 genome type. I have one representation. And partially because of that, I pay extra attention to things that 
help and support with brain health. And I also look to things like CoQ10 because again, where I have a potential miss as where I'm going to take a supplement. Look for those and take a test. You can take an omega-3 test. You can take a vitamin D3 test. I'm not sure on the B vitamins if they tend to run those in panels or not, but you'd probably be more aware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually interesting that you say that because I've tested more B vitamins, more the B12, uh, the water-soluble B vitamins, those routinely test for. But B12 is something that, especially if if somebody tells me they're fully plant-based, I definitely test for that because I encourage someone to take it, but we also want to make sure that they're absorbing and to see whether they need to take more and to be aware that, and I'm curious with, with your supplements, so usually it's sublingual rather than Essentially, if the B12 supplements go into your stomach, you don't absorb them as well. But I realize with your supplement, how is the how's it taken? So yeah, the immunity boost is an oral spray. So you spray it in the mouth, and then you're supposed to uh, the directions that the, we had to make on it because of legal requirements are spray into the mouth before swallowing. <laughs> I don't know. It's just how legal teams tell you you have to do it. Because I think if you say something like it's sublingual, then that becomes a drug treatment because that's common vernacular used for drugs. And this is, of course, not a drug. It's a supplement. So yes, I know in the mouth, things tend to be more absorbable, certain nutrients. That's even true of omega-3s. Some of the digestion can actually happen beginning in the mouth. However, because the omega-3s that Orlo produces are in the polar lipid form, it really doesn't matter because your absorption is so good of polar lipids. So they just get right into your system. Yeah, really interesting. I love that you're counseling people on the sublingual piece. Years ago, I worked with another company that had a little tablet that you were counseled to dissolve in the mouth. And it was just like a, you could chew it too if you wanted, but you know, it's not the best tasting thing, generally speaking, because vitamin B12 has such a strong kind of taste to it. Mm Mm-hmm. The immunity boost is really innocuous, a little sweet, has a slightly nutty flavor that I think comes from the B vitamins, which is is common. Mm-hmm. I do love also, you mentioned that for legalese, you have to say certain wording, but the truth is you want people to understand. So sublingual, it may be too medical jargon. And so people understand, okay, I spray this in my mouth exactly here, and this is what's going to help. And we run into that, you know, when I was in medical school, we'd learn situations where you couldn't figure out why They said they were taking a medicine. And then in the office, you would ask them to show you how they were taking a medicine. It was so interesting. It was such a visual of realizing that you may be communicating something, but they're hearing something completely different. And so to have communication gaps decrease like you do with saying, okay, spray it. So it may be for legal reasons that you have to say it, but it gets the point across of exactly how you want people to take what they're paying for. Yeah, you want people to get the benefits. Like I've seen DHEA creams as a, for instance, to help with women, anti-aging, weight loss, all sorts of things where they want you to rub it on your inner arm or your belly where apparently it absorbs a little bit better. But they'll say the same thing to men who are getting testosterone treatment and getting testosterone creams to rub on their bodies. But then sometimes they're transferring the testosterone to their partners and then their partners are getting symptoms of having too much testosterone in their systems because they're not on that medication or not meaning to be on the medication. And sometimes doctors have had to kind of dive through some of this. I learned about this first listening to Dr. Sean Tasson's podcast, and then I had him come on this show. He's got this podcast called Confessions of a Male Gynecologist. <laughs> nice. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's a really good show. So I encourage you to take a listen to that. But it's really interesting to see how people integrate the nutrition advice that they get, or even when they're given um, a drug that they need to take for a specific period of time, how poor compliance can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting they talk about compliance because sometimes with that word, we're like a patient's non-compliant. So they're not following your recommendations. And again, that communication gap can sometimes be a part of it. Or sometimes they just can't afford the medicine, but they don't feel comfortable telling their doctor, their medical provider that exactly. Or in my case, I have hypothyroidism. So I've been on a nature thyroid for sometime, basically since 2009, right? So it's something I have to take every day. And I don't love to have to take anything every day, but it's just something that's my prognosis in life, right? So for years, I was taking it at the wrong time of day. And I assumed that I could have my coffee with milk at the same time, right? But was impeding the absorption. So I was having to take a higher dose because I was getting calcium in the milk. And that was affecting my absorption of the medicine. And so, so many times it's like, we make assumptions as the patient, like, oh, well, it's just coffee. It's no big deal. Right. (laughs) So now my dosage is different because I no longer consume dairy and I'm better about taking it at least a half hour before I consume anything except for water. They didn't even want, want me having lemon water in the morning with it. Like literally just water for a half hour. That's your best bet. And then my dosage came down. So compliance matters, getting to know how your patients are following the letter of the law, that also matters. And sometimes asking questions differently or even being willing to share as the patient, not being afraid to share. Yeah. I want to say one thing before we move on to your next question, talking about these supplements. Otherwise, one of the other episodes we did with Doctors Plus Premium is we actually spoke to an oncologist who works in the same office as a naturopath. And that was a situation What I love about what they do is often people will go down one road and say, I want to go to the natural path road. I cancer. I don't want to touch an oncologist. And sometimes it's the other one. And the problem is sometimes the two, they're not telling each other that they're doing both. And what I love about this collaborative work is that you'll have a patient who is undergoing chemotherapy, otherwise working with the naturopath to see. And in that scenario, the the supplements or vitamin C, IV infusions or otherwise are prescribed and tailored by the naturopath who's having direct conversations with the oncologist to make sure that there's no cross reactions or any problems with the care that each one is giving them. And that to me is kind of the sweet spot of that collaborative work and a very different place of naturopathic care. So what you and I, of course, are talking about is adding to, like you said, rounding out our best food choices, kind of meeting any gaps that there might be. And of course, that situation is different, but another space for for naturopathic work. Wow. Well, I really think that that is a fantastic message. I'd love to invite you at this point in the podcast to share if there are any thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with, spots that you'd like them to visit. I know you have a website and I keep saying it wrong. So Sensation Salud, <laughs> so that people can get it correct. I want to say Sensacion. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I do have a website. So this might help with the name. So really Sensation Salud came out of uh, sensations, like waking up your senses around everything around food, where you get it. If you can picture the face of the person who grew the food, if you go to the farmer's market, or if you're getting grapes and you picture the heat that might've been in those grapes when they were growing and becoming really plump. And then all the way to the senses when you're in the kitchen and who you're surrounding yourself by when you're eating those foods that you created. And then Salud in Spanish means health, but it also means cheers. And this sense of really sharing our lives, 
and enjoying life. And that's why I always focus on delicious food that happens to be good for you. It's one of my biggest pieces. So yes, I'm on social media as Sensation Salud. You can find our Doctors Plus Premium on Apple Podcasts and also website is sensationsalud.com. I understand too that there are some sample episodes available for those who have not yet subscribed because the premium podcast is a membership podcast, correct? Yes, correct. So Doctors Plus goes back several years and there's some several podcasts that are free. And then when we entered, when I became host as Doctor Plus Premium, there are some free kind of welcome aboard. You can also subscribe and you have a certain number of days to see if the information is calling to you. And really the focus is evidence-based information, either with a allopathic MD, so traditionally trained MD. And we've, we're starting to have some conversations with some PhDs as well. And it's always with the focus that food can have a big role, not saying that it substitutes the medical road that you're on with your medical home, but that food can play a big role. And I always include a delicious recipe that goes along with the conversation that we've had with our expert. Wow. Well, I hope that you'll share a delicious recipe for this audience so that when we post the blog up, they can go to that as well. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was absolutely wonderful. You want a uh, recipe now? <laughs> oh, hey, maybe we can give a preview. Is it going to include the Buddha's hand or something super creative <laughs> that they won't have seen before? <laughs> oh, you got me on the spot here. I'm going to have to think about this one. I think my favorite, I could say anything that comes in a color or shape that is not the usual. So Buddha's hand is a perfect example where you have the citrus, like you described it so perfectly. I also love things like watermelon radish that looks really kind of white, greenish on the outside, not very exciting. You cut into it and it's just this gorgeous crimson color and it's just beautiful. Also even watermelon when it's yellow watermelon or a purple carrot or a purple potato, things that are just different than the standard things that you can get in a grocery store. Those can be simple recipes and incredibly inspiring. I love that. Now, I will also point out, I've recently started buying the bundle of heirloom carrots or the multicolored carrots. And I've always really, really loved parsnips, but I only really like them roasted. Well, guess what? The white carrot tastes a little bit like a parsnip. Interestingly enough, just raw, you can eat it like a carrot and it tastes a little bit like a parsnip. I love that about it. So get creative, get into the kitchen and enjoy a great recipe. So I'll follow up with you to get a recipe and put it in the blog. And thank you so much for joining us today, Sabrina. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate the invitation. Wow, what a conversation. I could keep talking to Dr. Sabrina Falke for hours if she'd have me. Now, <laughs> I want to go ahead and make sure everyone here knows how to find her and her important work with both the podcasts and also, I need to do this, sensationsalude.com. <laughs> so I will include direct links with show notes. You'll also find those, as always, with our entire transcripts on orlonutrition.com, along with that recipe or two from Dr. Sabrina Falquier. Now, if you happen to be in the San Diego area, you may be so lucky as to be able to connect with her directly, and even help you on your health journey. I encourage you to visit that website and listen to that podcast. Now, if you've learned something today, I hope that you'll subscribe to Nutrition Without Compromise on your favorite podcasting platform. While you're at it, please give us a thumbs up, five-star review, or even write us a review. This is its own kind of currency in the world of podcasting and helps the important information find its way to those that need to hear it. Now, as I close today's show, I hope that you'll join me as I say my parting words and I raise a cup of my favorite beverage. Today, it's coffee, but here's to your health.
Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either-or.